0: Welcome to the OnScript Podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast, and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript hey everyone welcome back to on script this is matt lynch coming to you from regent college in vancouver i want to just say that we're having a live on script event in conjunction with ivp academic at the annual meeting of society of biblical literature and american academy of religion in san antonio and it's going to be held at the little Rhine prost house in san antonio on sunday november 19th from 8 to 10 p.m and we're going to have a live interview with Sandra Glan about her book, Nobody's Mother, Artemis of the Ephesians in Antiquity and the New Testament. We'd love to see you there. There's going to be free food uh, for a lot of the early comers. There'll be even a free first drink as well if you want to enjoy that. So that's going to be on November 19th from 8 to 10 p.m. at the Little Rhine Prost House on the Riverwalk in San Antonio. So hope to see some of you there. And we hope that you enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening.
1: Welcome to Unscript, a space where we explore the intersections of theology and biblical studies and history and society and a myriad of issues facing contemporary Christianity. I'm your host, uh, Dr. Jules Martinez, coming to you directly from Florida. And today we have the distinct privilege of hosting Professor Dr. Lisa Powell, a theologian and ethicist from Saint Ambrose University in Iowa. Uh, Professor Powell's academic pursuits delve into liberation theologies, uh, feminist, black, Latinx theologies, queer, post-colonial theologies, and disability theology. She's the co-founder of the Disability Ethics Interest Group with the Society of Christian Ethics and has a rich academic portfolio, including her notable work, Inconclusive Theologies, Sor Juana, Kierkegaard, and theological discourse and today um, we are here to discuss her latest book the disabled god revisited trinity christology and liberation by tnt clark a compel- compelling exploration that revisits and amplifies the claim that god is disabled and in what sense but before we delve into this discussion it's imperative to highlight that there is a growing literature on disability studies and its significance and intersection with Christian theology. Uh, disability studies is a multidisciplinary field and it covers uh, social, political, and cultural dimensions of disability or the construals of disability, challenging uh, traditional notions and stigmas associated with it. And in the United States, over 61 million adults in our country um, live with disability. And this impacts not only their daily lives, but also their interactions with broader societal trust structures. So it is imperative for Christian theology to engage in this matter. Professor Powell, uh, we want to welcome you to OnScript.
2: Thanks. Happy to be here.
1: I think that we met back in 2018. Um, It was summer, and it was at the Carl Bart conference on. Colbert Studies and Liberation Theologies at Princeton Theological Seminary, right?
2: That's right. Well, we met probably through Dr. Louise Rivera Pagan. Yes. With whom we we're both friends. So yes. We have him to thank also.
1: We were both yeah. uh, doing uh, breakout presentations. My presentation was kind of boring, I think.
2: I went to your presentation. It was on Sabrina and victims, and I learned a lot.
1: But I went to your presentation, and it was fascinating. It was very engaging. Uh, There was a good dialogue and uh, a provocative interaction with some leading scholars over there.
2: It was lively. Yes, one way to put it.
1: (laughs) To say the least. (laughs) Yes. So you're a systematic theologian and an ethicist. how did you arrive at this place and uh, your vocation
2: Well I, I warned you that I'm to try to keep this part short Because You know I grew up um, Very devout And my dad's a pastor In the Church of the Nazarene And uh, Evangelical uh, Denomination Small Denomination um, And I grew up Feeling a real call um, or A pull to serve God I was You know Loved Jesus very much And there wasn't. I didn't know a lot of what women could do, um, though the Church of the Nazarene has ordained women since it began. I didn't know any women who were actually pastors. So one thing that I was drawn to were missionary books. We have the Church of the Nazarene has a very lively uh, mission history, and all of these fascinating books of women in Africa and India, and you know the, all of these narratives and. I um, thought I was going to become a missionary, you know, I was going to go spread the love of Jesus. Um, so when I went to college, I was an English major. Oftentimes you can get into countries if you teach English. So mm-hmm. I was a, a literature major um, and took some theology courses um, as a, an elective and loved loved them. I had all sorts of theological questions I was already grappling with in my own life, um, free will versus you know, election was a was a big one for me. How is faith not a work? Um, and was just really um, encouraged by my English faculty members, actually in my English department. There were a lot of women um, in in that department, and they said, "If you're as good in theology as you are in literature, maybe you should pursue um, graduate studies there." I had sort of given up the, the, the mission, um, the idea of becoming a a missionary. But, um, so yeah, so I went to, uh, eventually went to Princeton Seminary to complete my MDiv and then, um, really fell in love with the questions of systematic theology. So then I did my PhD there as well.
1: And, uh, this relationship between systematic theology, ethics and disability studies, um, when did it start it?
2: Well, so when I was in my MDiv, I I had a crisis of faith. Um, yeah, complicated uh, relationship with the holiness tradition that I grew up in, and um, wasn't sure where where I would fall. I thought maybe I had really lost my faith altogether, and it was through reading Cone and Gutierrez primarily that I found a home, like there was a a language for me. And I, so I credit liberation theology with really saving my faith. Um, So I became just a student of theologies of liberation. Like when you read my bio at the beginning, I was a little embarrassed because it was like, she is a scholar of every liberation theology that has ever existed, (laughs) which is, you know, obviously not, not a reality, But I do try to continually read in all of those areas and continue to learn. And it's my primary area of teaching at St. At Ambrose. Um, disability, when I heard that there was a liberation theology of disability, I immediately ordered it back in early aughts, I guess. Um, and, you know, I was just excited to, to learn about it and started teaching a chapter from Eselin's book, The Disabled God, um, I think my first year here at St. Ambrose, which was right after I finished my PhD in 2008, I um, would teach her a chapter on the Eucharist in my, just my intro to Christian theology course. Um, so that's sort of just how it started, just because I was collecting every, you know, every liberation theology I could find. I, I was eager to gobble it up.
1: All right, so this text, uh, The Disabled God Revisited, Trinity, Christology, and Liberation. Um, You are expanding constructively and proposing your own way um, in light of Nancy Aisland's uh, proposal of the disabled God. Uh, Can you tell us what's the main claim, and then we'll delve into the
2: details? Well, so I, you know, sort of lay out the... The argument that Island makes, um, some of the critiques, some of which are founded because she hadn't developed the systematic or like doctrinal categories around those, <clears throat> and then draw from this really, as you mentioned in the introduction, this um, intense debate going on in Barth's studies around the nature of the triune life and how that relates to the identity of the sun in the, in the Trinity. and I use an argument developed primarily by uh, Bruce McCormick and then picked up by by others to argue that not only is the son you know, incarnate in Jesus, everlastingly in impaired flesh because of the incarnation and crucifixion, but is eternally um, anticipating an impaired body um, so that it just gives even a stronger case for this as an identity of, of um, one person of the Trinity or one mode of God's being in the triune life eternally.
1: Um, in, and in your first chapter, you develop a covenant ontology.
2: Yeah, borrow that from, from Bruce McCormick, but yeah. McCormick, yeah, but you're yeah.
1: borrowing uh, from, from McCormick. Yeah,
2: yeah. Uh, I wish I could take credit for it, but yeah.
1: <laughs> and you use it as a framework. Can you tell us a little bit about that? How, how, what is the contribution? What does the framework of a covenant ontology allow allows you to do um, and connect the incarnation to disability?
2: So um, this is it's really a, a complicated and intricate debate, and I tried really hard to make it As simple uh, and clear as possible, though a few of my friends have read the book and said they (laughs) they they were um, a little uh, struggling to make sense of it all. But um, so you know, there there's sort of this traditional or more classic notion that God it just is eternally triune, that that is in as you would say um, prior in some sense, to God's decision to create and enter into covenant with God's creation. So that the there just is this triune life of God, of God as Father, Son, and Spirit in loving communion. And then that triune God decides to create something outside of God's self and enter into that relationship. So, what um, McCormick and others have done based on some some of Bart's later work in the dogmatics is to say, well, that, so one of the things that Bart says is that, you know, God self-determines who God is um, within God's self is based upon God's self-determination, God's decision to be this God. And so then if God determines God's being, there is for McCormick and others in this sort of covenant ontology framework, meaning that God's being, the ontology of God, right? The being of God is determined for covenant with with creation outside of God's self, so that God's triune life, God's being as triune is, in essence, (laughs) a result of God's decision to create and be in relationship. And the implications of that end up being that God has Always, like the Son was always going to be incarnate. God's um, purpose in being three is for the sake of creation, revelation, and relationship. So if God was always going to be incarnate, God was always going to be incarnate in this particular person that is Jesus. So that there's these statements that Bart makes about um, that there's basic, that, that Jesus is um, the subject <laughs> of the son, like that the son and, and the, and Jesus are, it's like logos is a placeholder for Jesus. And so thinking about Jesus, even in Jesus's historical specificity as being the identity of the logos, and there's no identity of the logos or of the son behind who the logos and the son are in Jesus of Nazareth. Um, and that means that, that identity is always determined or always anticipating always going to be that particular human god human person jesus
1: so god's being is determined by his by god's self-determination to be triune for the sake of humanity and the world so instead of saying like maybe some classical the- theologies will say that the triune eternal being of god is the metaphysical foundation of the missions of God in history, we're saying, according to Bart and following McCormack, that it is God's eternal self-determination to be triune for the sake of humanity, and in that self-determination includes the incarnation of the Son. And since it includes the incarnation of the Son, we need to think always of the Son as incarnated. As assuming humanity, inevitably or eternally so,
2: right? So that so that in some sense humanity and even embodiment has an eternal place within the life of God, which is pretty radical.
1: Wow! Yes, <laughs> it it is right. It is radical. It's just radical. Um, They're like heresy. Um, well, usually um, we find that our theological language on the Incarnation assumes that God creates and then after things go away, after the what is called classically the Fall, then God determines the Incarnation. That is, it is a post-lapsarian event. But in this model, it is an eternally determined situation of God's being and the way that God is going to relate to the world specifically for the sake of humanity. In the life of the Son.
2: I mean, I like to think that God. I mean, you know, Irenaeus, that God was always going to become incarnate, but there was, you know, Mm that Jesus, God would have always come to be with us and reveal God's being to us, um, God's character and nature to us, but that there is now an extra, an extra reason for that—not just revelation, but reconciliation.
1: So, how, how how does this relate to how you, in chapter three, for example, develop a canonic Christology? You argue that it should be understood in terms of the concept of receptivity rather than
2: obedience. Some of that receptivity language comes from again the, the work of Bruce McCormick and his interpretation of Cyril of Alexandria um, and the way that Cyril thought about the you know divine human relationship in Jesus and. How do we understand two natures within one subject, within one person, right? Um, and so, obviously, the church struggled to make sense of that, and there was all sorts of debates and divides. And, and one solution was, you know, what we now call canonic Christology from um, Philippians 2, that the son emptied himself um, and did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. So that self-emptying. So then there's all these different approaches to how do we think about the the emptying that the son was involved in. And instead of it being so then this approach, rather than saying, you know, like one way that I was always taught it as a kid was, you know, the son gave up the omnis, you know, omnipotence, omnipresence, and omniscience. So that, you know... The Son was was in the flesh, was truly in you know, I don't want to say enclosed in the flesh because it was probably not that simplistic, but um, gave up these you know typical powers of God or something, and and was briefly incarnate for thirty three years, and then assumed them all back up you know when he ascended to heaven. So rather than thinking of it as this emptying, I mean, I think I mentioned that. Uh, Rosemary Radford Rutherford famously talks about Jesus as the canonic um, is the emptying of the patriarchy that Jesus does not assume the the masculine authorities that would have been given him in his time and place. But um, this approach says that in, instead of um, it being an emptying, it is an addition And so there is that classic interpretation so that it's not completely diverging from tradition that that Cyril thought about it as and as an addition that the humbling that happens in Christ is not the giving up of something, but the addition of the humanity, which in and of itself would would be humbling right to to become one subject with with humanity. But in Cyril's case, and what was typically the case in ancient Christologies, was that the divine still completely overpowered the human. So that, yes, there was like a human that sort of like a puppet used, you know, a flesh puppet used by the divine to accomplish the divine's purpose. And in this approach, the divine uh, receptivity, the addition of the humanity and the the divine receives the real human action of Jesus as the real act activity of of the God human. So um, it's not the divine overpowering the human, but the divine receiving the real human response, a human action of Jesus. Um, and I do think it's, and we can talk about um, some of Bart's problematic um, language and work around, you know, the obedience, the eternal obedience of the sun, this um, eternal submission of the sun, and why that um, is problematic for a lot of
1: people. So in this model of, of, of kenoticism, uh, on the one side, uh, it seems that it solves the issue of, of the model that claims that there was an abandonment or divesting of the ovnis, which will imply a change in the divine being That seems uh, illogical how God can stop being that which is God is eternally. But it it seems that it's gaining something by saying it is not uh, decreasing something, but an eternal decision to add something.
2: Yeah, so one of the things that I think is really interesting about this proposal is that, you know, it's kind of common now in... Even more progressive theologies to just abandon the immutability of God, you know, um, and so you would, you just wouldn't care so much about preserving the unchangeable nature of God, and so you could just say, you know, God was triune eternally, but then God decided to do this, and then yeah, God really took the humanity seriously or something, because the unchanging nature of God isn't a, isn't a doctrine that you care to preserve, and then, and that's fine. I I do like. Preserving immutability, because I, I feel like that's the foundation for God's faithfulness, that we can trust who God is and who God has revealed God's self to be in Jesus. You know, like in this sense, I'm probably very Bardian because I just like I really just go back to Jesus and, you know, it's just central to everything that I want to say about God. So in this approach, yeah, it, it preserves the immutability while abandoning what is usually paired with the Im- immutability, which is the impassibility of God. Um, God does take real human suffering into God's self. It is a real experience of God in the eternal life of the Son as the God-man, God-human.
1: So it preserves uh, one notion of immutability, which is the unchangeable nature of God's character, will, and covenantal promises that are constant, and these do not change. They are unaffected by external or internal or temporal changes.
2: And in fact, they're so... Unchanging or so constant that they were there, and they were the foundation of the actual triune life of God. That logical priority given to God's covenantal nature—I I just think it's a beautiful proposal. It's just like, wow, God really does love us. Like, I don't know. It just—I yes, love and that. and will the, not stop. Yeah. He will
1: not stop. <laughs>
2: and there's no God hidden behind that. I mean, that's one of the things. You know, there's sort of t- in the in the debate around this, this talk about closing that sort of that gap, that metaphysical gap, like who is the logos behind the incarnation? If the logos had some sort of identity other than always going to be incarnate, well, what is that? We have no access to that. And it just feels like this, this God who was just like kind of getting lonely and, and was like, I know that doesn't make sense because God is eternal and these decisions were all eternal, but um, that God's nature and being was always for this. There wasn't a before god's decision to be really in it with us i love that
1: so you uh entered into a discussion of receptivity and obedience um and you related to feminist critiques of obedience language in the life of god particularly in relationship in relationship to the son and the father can you tell us a little bit about that
2: yeah so um bart and other Um, major theologians of his generation, like von Balthasar, does something very similar. They use an analogy of the father and the son, the father commands, the father leads, the son obeys, the son follows. And they try to explain that in their their theological works by comparing it to the relationship between a husband and wife that the, the husband commands and the husband leads and the wife submits and the wife follows. Um, and so obviously, you know, if you think about womenist critiques like Dolores Williams, um, you know, Sisters in the Wilderness and and ways in which or and even Valerie Savings, you know, work too the way that, you know, but especially probably Dolores Williams, the way that we are told to, you know, imitate Christ and model ourselves after Christ and how that sort of be submissive, be, you know, humble, like Christ was, you know, Jesus was, how that seems to really just be enforced on women, especially when you use an analogy like like wives to husbands. Um, it sure suggests that the women's role is to be submissive, even if it's supposed to be all humanity is supposed to relate to Jesus as being submissive. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot of reason to be concerned about that obedience, submissive language. And, and so, I, I try to reframe it a bit by talking about receptivity instead of strict obedience. And and even that is can be problematic from a feminist perspective. And, and so I, I bring in some disability critiques of some liberal feminism that has, you know, a certain generation or wave of feminism that just wanted women to, to be like men and to, and to, you know, we're the same, we're equal, we do everything the same. And so... Um, that means we're all strong and we're all powerful and no talk about, you know, weakness or receptivity or or submission and to just problematize it a little bit. And so so disability critiques some feminist um, movements by saying, but what about what if we are weak? What if I so, what if I need to re, for someone to care, you know, care for me? Or what if I am some somewhat dependent, you know, because there's this whole like independence, i um, the independent woman, you know, which I think is important. But if we do our feminist discourse in a way that denigrates the lives of people that need care or that have physical weakness, you know, we're, not, we're not doing our jobs as good feminists.
1: There is a critique there of modern notions of the autonomous individual, how we project those notions into the doctrine of God and how we then emulate those notions in our into our doctrine of humanity it seems that sometimes the the Imago Dei is ideally construed as the autonomous individual who has the capacity in him or herself to do, to decide, to create, to, to be empowered. But in disability studies and in part of the Christian tradition, the Imago Dei is construed in terms of fully relationality. We are who we are in terms of how we relate and are codependent on others. That seems to be part of the contribution here, right? The discussion is going through problematic notions of obedience and dependence to a more integral notion of being in relationship with others.
2: Yeah, I mean, it seems like every for every time in history that people have been thinking and talking about God, I mean, it seems like we take our supreme value, whatever it is that our culture thinks is most important or makes the best human, and then we just like, project it in superlative form onto God. And, and certainly that's one of the major critiques of sort of West, this Western you know, mindset or like the stage of modernity where we do prize the autonomous, independent individual as the ultimate human, and it would seem that we project that onto God in a way that doesn't really make sense, especially in terms of um, God's revelation in Jesus, where, you know, if we say that Jesus is like the window into the being of God, um, it's funny. I mean, in disability studies, this, this notion of interdependence is, is self-debated. I mean, it's a, it's a wide spectrum of of disciplines and perspectives within the field. I mean, it's growing and then there's critique within the movement of different approaches. So, you know, there is a a whole movement within disability that is encouraging independence, right? Because the way that society used to just push people with disabilities into homes where they had no independent autonomous life where they can make decisions for themselves and eat what they wanted to eat and dress how they wanted to dress or what have you. Um, So there's a push against that, obviously, which is to um, support the independence movement for people with disabilities. Of course, you know, what's interesting about that movement for independence within the disability movement is that that independence is, is itself dependent upon the care and work of, of other people, of caregivers who allow and support that independent life. So even that in the term, it's, you know, it's about independence, but it's but it's a bit of a misnomer because it is it's still it's it's saying that we as a society need to provide the care to allow for so-called independent lives, you know, f- for everyone who who can and, and desires it. So, but yes, my my book um, leans pr- pretty heavily into the interdependency as as a mago day as as what we look forward to in paradise. That that is a, a return to truly interconnected and interdependent life, and I I think that we have that modeled for us um, in Jesus. In this, that the divine is receptive and and receives, and and I think one of your questions maybe. I will address some of that more as well.
1: Yeah, I was going to mention that you do argue for an understanding of receptivity as an active mode of relation, and you draw on examples of caregiving. How does it reframes receptivity and interdependence? Can you elaborate more on that?
2: Yeah, this um, idea came largely from Eva Kete, who's a philosopher um, with a daughter with disabilities, um, Sasha, who is significantly disabled. And she observed the, the way and when, and then her mother also at some point, you know, a lot of us are you know, reaching an age where we will be, we are caring for our parents or have seen our parents care for our grandparents, right? And ways in which people can be receptive of the care, um, actively receiving it or can confide it in a way. And so there is agency in the way someone takes up care. And so Eva Kate talks about care. It's real care, having to have both parts. It's not just I'm imposing care upon you and here it is, right? It is a relationship, an exchange that happens between two people in that caring relationship. And then she notes that even the caregiver also needs care. So the, the parent who is giving all this care needs the support and has to also receive care to allow that caregiver to continue to, to give care and stay in that care relationship. So there's layers of care and receiving of care that have to happen to, to really flourish as a community and as a society.
1: In your interdisciplinary approach, you also use uh, queer theory. Yeah. To try to uh, destabilize uh, and, and challenge some gendered assumptions behind active and passive binaries, and what are the what is the contribution that you see from queer perspective to conceptualizing receptivity, particularly in the way that you construe divine receptivity?
2: Sure. Well, so. Lynn Tonstad um, has a great book um, that deals with this primarily in von Balthasar, um, God and Difference. And she makes it, it's unpacks it so clearly. It's very clear that these frameworks, like Bart, Bart's a little bit less explicit than von Balthasar is. But I, I guess I get into it a little bit in his um, the way he frames his theological anthropology there it's clear that women are receptive so um, he compares um, the son receiving this like the son's being from the father to Eve receiving her self from Adam.
1: Strong biological analogy.
2: <laughs> yeah right right and so there there's these clear links it, through in a number of of major theological works where the woman is associated with receptivity and the male, I mean, in goodness, like in in von Balthasar, it's, it's just like the male is associated like with penetration even. I mean, it's really physiological and, um,
1: the phallic emphasis and analogy. Yeah.
2: It's, it's very, um, I mean, it's very sexual. Um, and it's wild when you see it because it's so obvious once it's pointed out to you. So So, you know, when you're looking at receptivity and now I'm like, oh, well, the receptivity is great, but receptivity is always associated with the female. I'm trying my best to write a text that is really embracing of the concerns of a spectrum of of marginalized peoples. And women have certainly historically been on the underside of of the theological tradition. So wanting to be really sensitive to what does it mean that I'm saying, well now we're elevating this idea of receptivity, of the divine receptivity. So I do choose to draw some from from queer theory and from disability theory around sex to try to problematize that association of women as always the receptive one, and the male as always the penetrative one, I guess. Um, and so here it's like, well, we've always thought, well, God, it's so in in Balthazars, it's like God is, The father, and so God is associated with agency and with the giving, and then the son is the receiver. And so then it's always sort of in this binary that it breaks down once the son, who is the receptive one in the triune life, who then becomes incarnate and immediately becomes the active agent to the receptive humanity. So it's like, oh, well, now all of a sudden he's. You know, he's the male in the binary. It, anyways, it's very clear throughout, and hopefully, I, I do a good job of of highlighting that. But here, I'm saying, well, what if? Does it change at all if we say it's the divine who's receptive? And does it does it place a different value on that as being? Not a terrible place to be and then trouble it so that we we say, okay, it's okay to be receptive. And not only women are receptive and sometimes women are active agents and trying to disconnect the association as much. I mean, I'm not going to overturn, you know, 2000 years of of history and and imagery and symbolism, but um, trying to push at it a little bit and um, think about other ways we can think about receptivity that isn't so biological and strictly associated with female anatomy.
1: Now, uh, the way in which uh, you're speaking about receptivity and vulnerability in the divine being uh, as God's eternal covenantal self-determination, some critics will say, well, this actually threatens divine aseity, that is uh, the self-sufficiency of God, uh, makes God dependent on created beings or creation how do you navigate these concerns about compromising divine self-sufficiency in the way that you're proposing the benefits of seeing how God is ontologically receptive?
2: Yeah, I think I have only a couple reviews out there um, on the interwebs, and one of them says something about, I don't think you have to abandon a saiety. Like, it's fine and all, but I didn't have to abandon a saiety. So I guess... I'll start with this. When I think of divine aseity, and, and maybe, you know, I think there's like massive, huge, recent works on aseity, so I'm sure someone's going to hate this, but um, I think of it as God's utter freedom to self-determine. So, at that, that moment of God's self-determination, and, and God determined freely to limit God's self and to determine that God's choice was to be a certain kind of God. And this is how God shaped God's own life, uh, to be triune for covenant. Um, So I don't think I've, I mean, that's what I think at some point I say, I'm like not making like one branch of theology that really wants to do away with, you know, omnipotent God, the God's power. Um, And, and Eastland is, is much more critical of divine power than I am in my book in that I say, God is so utterly free. And and I guess in a sense, powerful, I probably don't use the word powerful, but to self-determine, which is, you know, that's pretty autonomous moment, but we can never get to a moment right before God was eternally determined for covenant. So, um, so that's just sort of this fictive you know, moment in our imagination we can try to to think about, but um, that, that, that before where God chose this, that that was the moment that God expressed God's aseity and immediately gave it up for um, a life that expresses some element of need and dependency.
1: You know, um, when I started reading um, your book, I remember that one of the things that caught my attention in reading articles on theology and disability studies Um, was the observation that uh, the images that we have in scripture, the the eschatological images of uh, the return of Christ, we see uh, in the book of Revelation, here's the Lamb of God, here's the scarred Lamb of God. (laughs) Um, And I never did much about it when I was in seminary, but then all of a sudden I see strongly that, the resurrected jesus not only in appearing to his disciple disciples before glorification and the ascension but also in his return is portrayed as bearing the marks and how that might speak to how we construe disability whether cognitive physically and this takes me to the payout of your theological construal in terms of receptivity, uh, vulnerability in God, God's self-determination to be covenantally united in this way via the incarnation, to a discussion that is usually in the minds of people. How do we approach disabilities eschatologically, whether disabilities are retained in the resurrection, for example? I think that your treatment of it Kind of a challenge, common notions of a restored future or a notions of what does it mean to be perfect, to have a perfect body?
2: That's probably my favorite chapter, and I think it's most people's uh, favorite, um, just because you get to get into a lot of fun like speculation from you know, the ancient and medieval church around what our bodies are going to be. in but I mean,
1: there are all kinds of speculations. We have speculations about the age, yes. exactly. Uh, the height, the mm-hmm. weight. <laughs> I mean.
2: It's, it's wild. Um, yeah, but the, uh, pretty much mo- most everyone th- thought we would be somehow aesthetically beautiful based on the values of the time that it was written. Um, and, you know, bodily perfect, meaning without impairments, without the signs of aging, and without the signs of accidents or battle, unless it was from a martyrdom or, you know, some kind of torture for the sake of your faith. And then there was some speculation that it will be restored to you. Your, your limb was cut off, it'll be restored. But it will be, have a glowing scar, like a glorious, beautiful scar To uh, uh, that's a mark of honor. I think that was Augustine. Um, and I, so I should say that um, this is a really debated in disability theology, and there's lots of, of great work dealing with this. Um, so I draw a bit from Alison Caper, who is a contemporary disability thinker. And she talks about how we imagine futures and and how when she became impaired, became disabled, she um, had everyone was was so sorry for her. Like, your future is over. You know, her family and friends looked at her life as it was just pitiable. And there was just no real hope. She's going to be using a wheelchair and she, you know, has uh, lots of scars on her body from a fire. But then she talked to people with disabilities and they have this totally different imagined future for her of community and creativity and humor and just a fulfilling life. And so what, you know, she experienced was how we imagine the futures of people impacts how we treat them in the present. And that is really what Island um, observed as well that this idea that you, you know, well, when you get to heaven, you can run, you'll be able to run to Jesus, you know, like leave your wheelchair behind you and you're going to get legs just like mine. And that projection that says your body now isn't okay. And, you know, God has to fix you and, and how you are now is, it's not really welcome into the kingdom of God. I don't know if I answered that question.
1: No, no, no. Thank you. Uh, I uh... And, and of course, uh, different forms of, of disabilities are bring more immediate or more delayed suffering in the, way, the same way that people who do not have disabilities suffer in other ways. But the way in which we construct disability in relationship to what does it mean to, for example, to be a flourishing human being depends a lot on the way that societies organize themselves uh what does it mean to be productive what does it mean to be uh an agent in a and contribute to society what does it mean what is the meaning of work and what is the most uh, particularly in a, in a neoliberal capitalist society the definition of efficiency and how certain bodies are are given priority but all bodies are codified as as things as machines for optimal performance Given, of course, given that in us in in admitting the suffering relationship to that, inform hopeful speculation about eschatological bodies um, can actually affect how we hope for things. In the strand of disability theology that you're working with, the question then arises: um, if disability is returned, is retained? In the resurrected life, uh, what does this suggest about (laughs) impairment in relationship to two other Mm -hmm. locations, the sin and the fall, which in the traditional healing model is like, well, uh, this is the effects of sin.
2: Yeah, I, I just um, finished my sabbatical application uh, for my next sabbatical and my, my project is going to be to investigate um, doctrine of creation um from a disability perspective because i mean i think i mean the thing that we have to avoid is always associating like the entrance of impairment into the world as tragedy a result of the fall right thus associated with sin and even evil it's i mean obviously that it's a complicated category as it is as as it is too in the eschatological sense because people who are born with disabilities have a very different relationship to their disabilities than people who acquire disability, especially through trauma. So, you know, so some people or you know, or their disability is very painful right. versus, you know, it's, it's mostly an inconvenience. When we talk about it eschatologically, we're not saying that you still have, there's still pain in heaven, obviously, but that's why in that in, in the end, I, I say that I think what we don't do away with disability, we just dis, we do away with ability that there there is no more binary between the, the able and the disabled. Everyone is so utterly interdependent that there can be no distinction, no distinction in terms of ability, disability. But um, yeah, I mean, the creation uh, notion and how that how that relates to disability, it, it's not going to be easily teased out because um, a lot of, you know, we all just want to think about impairment as just human difference, which I think is valid. But again, you have disability that is acquired through trauma, which is obviously a result of sin. And then we, you know, would really want to talk about how the way that society shapes itself to disable people, meaning to, to, to make an impairment a disabling condition, that is maybe where we need to focus our conversation of sin. Not on how individual bodies bear the mark of, of of some supposed original fall of you know the the first humans. So it is it's a complicated topic for sure. But I think the push has to be to not associate impairment it's the, the embodiment itself to be a sign that sin entered the world with tra- or with tragedy or you know it's like the existence of impairment always compels people to want to talk about theodicies you know like why why are there people with this we have to justify god because of of um, the existence of impairments um so i think the push is just how do we talk about that without how do we navigate that
1: it caught my attention how you pointed that in eternity or in the hope of the resurrected life the beatific vision the new creation etc the binaries will go away that is this are construals the categories of able disabled will not have a function of demarcation between people who can do certain things in relationship to people who can't do certain things but there Mm -hmm. is a whole integral interdependent body of christ in glory Uh, i think that's a beautiful picture now because you mentioned that you, you you want to uh go beyond retaining categories of disabled and disabled and you relate that to critiques of identity politics
2: That's <laughs> their question you know this is a potent you know obviously a, a open for lots of debate um especially when we're talking about categories of race jonathan tran has a, a book that came out i don't know a couple years ago um asian american rise of capitalism. So I can't remember the, sorry, the exact title. I should have had all this stuff. Probably. But he, he brings into question the, the usefulness of the categories and, you know, and actually, um, Jay Cameron Carter does as well in his book, race, a theological account, where it, these are categories that, I mean, whiteness and blackness were categories created by white supremacy for the purpose of, you know, exploitation, power, and money, um, primarily. So, you know, why do we want to ultimately retain them when these are markers that were created for oppression and categories that are social categories placed upon us? Like our bodies are, you know, experience the world in, in our society in a certain way, but because of because of the way these they're surveyed and, and scrutinized and policed in, in different ways. And So I question how those will persist. Um, And and I try to push toward this sort of evolving identity um, that's, you know, I borrow from Amos Young and his work um, in disability theology, thinking about heaven more in a sort of an Eastern Orthodox way of its ongoing transformation, never reaching your final, um, beatific vision in that sense, you know, you're, you're always going to learn more about God and you're always going to grow more and more. Um, cause it's never, you know, expended, you know, it's never fully, your desire for God is never fully satiated. And so I, I like to think that, and, and I use some work on, the amputees in the Gospel of Mark, um, Candida where it seems as though perhaps people's arms will eventually be restored, but they will enter heaven without them. So this idea that it's not a static state that we just go into, you know, go into heaven and this, you know, this is it, but that it's a, a transformative, eternal process, and so that those categories I hope fall away or become less meaningful. But obviously, we're so shaped by those identities. Now it's hard to imagine letting go of them entirely, but I, it's a thought experiment. And I use some, some work in trans theology too, to think about, you know, this ongoing transformation of, of self and identity. And certainly trans theory um, supports, supports that ongoing nature of progress of not, I don't want to use the word progress, but just the ongoing nature of transformation of, of the self, including the body
1: in that last chapter, you want to avoid romanticizing disability while still challenging uh, problematic notions of able-bodiedness, and you're calling uh, theologians to assume a transformative journey into greater interdependence in our notions of body in relationship to God. What would you say to you know the layperson, normal Christian that goes to you? you know, another conversation with some of your friends about your book and the people who are listening to you. How can this proposal help us in thinking about how God cares for us in these ways, particularly, especially uh, people who uh, have any kind of disability?
2: Well, I think first and foremost, what I love about the covenant ontology is It grounds it so obviously that humanity, the universe, matters to God at the at the very core, from the eternal identity. I mean, it's just the strongest case I've ever heard for God's love and desire to be with us, Um, and God's solidarity. I mean, you know, we use that word a lot of God's solidarity in liberation theology, but it's like to have it grounded that God's eternal. Triune self is actually for the purpose of solidarity with us um, is, I think, um, just stunning. And um, this idea that in doing that, God allows God's self to need. I think that does obviously challenge this sort of self this this just glorification of self-sufficiency. You know, we all just want to be utterly self-sufficient and not need anyone and not rely on anyone. We can take care of it because it's scary to rely on people because that makes us dependent in some way. So I I do think that it it shows us that need is nothing to be ashamed of and that it is a value even in the life of God to to need each other, to allow yourself to need and to receive care in your need, um, I have a good friend who um, has bipolar disorder, and I she she advertises it widely, and she's constantly reminding, like on all of her Facebook posts, like I'm putting out there that this is what I need, and she and she's always modeling it, and because sometimes I'll be like, I, I can do it, I can do it, you know, I do it all, and. It's really hard to allow myself to say no i I actually need help um, and reach out and 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 ask people, I broke my jaw I, think, I don't know, if I told you that I broke my jaw Wow. no in April, oh my gosh, um, it was horrible, and I was on a just the most purified liquid diet imaginable, like just not even a thick soup would work like just very, very thin liquid diet for eight weeks. And, um, the amount of people, like, I just like, I can't fix food for my family. Like, I can't even like look at real food and not start crying (laughs) because I'm so hungry. So, you know, I had to call on people and people came, you know, and they brought food to my family and brought me smoothies. And, um, it was like another, you know, one moment of a lesson of, you know, we really do need each other and it's okay to need and receive the care that people are offering.
1: Um, as we close, I, uh, I want to say how much I appreciate it also the, the way that you write inviting into serious dialogue because the issue is not whether we can agree with all the models that you're presenting, but whether our dogmatic construals of God christology god's life god's actions uh anthropology especially in relationship to with to individuals with disabilities can inform that discussion to what extent can our theologies be liberating in solidarity and produce hope reconfiguring our eyes in a way that we don't duplicate oppressions but that we are truly a interdependent body of christ and i think that's uh provocative enough and enough of a challenge.
2: Oh, thank you Jules.
1: So I want to thank you. Thank you so much uh for being here with us today. Uh your book is The Disabled God Revisited: Trinity, Christology and Liberation, our uh, liberation uh, by TNT Clark. Uh it was just published this year and um thank you for enriching our discussion and we are looking forward to more of your work.
2: Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
1: Okay, so um this is on script and until next time, uh, nos vemos. We will see you in another episode. This is Jules Martinez. God bless.